Uh, excited to see you here this morning, church family. What a joy to just get to be together. And to worship the Lord, to praise the Lord, to open up His Word together. And I'm going to invite you, if you've got your Bible, that you open up to the book of Philippians. And we're back in chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2. And uh, we are going to pick right back up in the middle of a four-verse stretch that we started last week. Now, last week we started walking through verses 14 through 18. And and it's an interesting, all four verses are essentially one really long run-on sentence. And it's a really interesting run-on sentence because as you study the, the passage, uh, if you really dig in, many are, are very confused as how to take it because it seems that Paul starts one direction, which is what we looked at last week, unpacking this truth that in everything, in every aspect of working out our salvation with fear and trembling, we are to do all things with no hint of grumbling or complaining. And so he starts down this path, we do all things without no grumbling or complaining, that we may be pure and blameless. There's this desire that, that the Philippians and, and, and you and I stand before Jesus uh, on that day, rightly pure and blameless, that we shine presently in the world uh, as brilliant stars, both exposing the darkness to light and, and being that light through which the, those who are trapped in darkness can find the Savior. And then all of a sudden, Paul takes this abrupt personal turn. And he begins to talk about the nature of his, his ministry, his labor. And so I invite you to look with me. Let's pick up in verse 16. He says this. He says, uh, talking about them being pure and blameless children of God, holding fast or holding forth the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory, reason to boast, grounds for boasting, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. So all of a sudden, we're talking about the Philippians doing all things without grumbling or complaining, and boom, Paul makes this statement, so that on the day of Christ, I may boast. Now, hopefully, maybe that, the student here, that catches you. We've, we've, we've been talking all throughout chapter 2, especially about humility. And Paul says, so that I may boast. Well, what does he mean by boasting? What he does not mean is that on that day when Christ returns and our, our lives are evaluated and examined by him, that on that day I will have something because of my own effort, my own ability, my own, that I can boast about before Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, look at me. Look at how great I did. That is not what Paul is saying. In fact, the word there for boasting, it's, it's this idea of, of, of the foundation, the, the reason behind uh, why someone might boast. It's, his boasting is not a boasting of what he's done. It's a boasting of God having accomplished his will through him. It's Paul's recognition that God has placed a calling upon his life to go and make disciples. And it's, it's that boasting that on that day before Christ, as those disciples, Paul has by the grace of God gone and run and labored and sought to make as they stand before him that Jesus would be pleased having fulfilled the ministry he called Paul to. It has nothing to do with Paul. It has to do with Jesus' ministry being fulfilled through Paul. And he, he says that I would have reason that I did not run in vain or toil in vain. That, that picture of running, of, of strenuous effort, of exertion, of... I mean, let's be honest. I know there's probably a few in here who would do it, but if, 
If we took a poll, how many of you love running? Most people don't like running. Why? Because running involves hard effort. It involves hard effort. It, 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 it taxes you. It, and he says, I, I did not run in vain. He mentions the word toil. That word toil is a word that means uh, to exert oneself physically, mentally, or spiritually. It pictures the idea of hard work, of striving, of struggling. The picture that Paul paints here is that in this ministry, he is running, he is toiling. These are words of intentionality, of hard work, of endurance in face of adversity, of perseverance in the face of challenge, of activity. Paul says, I have engaged in ministry. It is like running. It is like laboring. And I do not desire that it be in vain or that it be without purpose or result. His hope and desire is he charges the Philippians here as he picked all the way back in chapter 1, verse 27, saying, conduct yourselves, live out your citizenship worthy of the gospel. And as he unpacks that and says, that's going to look like as, as one unit striving side by side for the spread of the gospel. It's going to look like not being afraid of that which your opponents threaten. It's going to look like suffering as a gift of grace for the cause of Christ. It's going to mean being walking in unity, dwelling as a church family in unity as you walk in humility. It's going to mean taking serious the salvation of God that he is actively at work working out in you. You take it serious in fear and trembling, living it out without grumbling or disputing. He said, all of this labor where I am working and calling, it's this ministry is that you would stand before Christ and I would not have run or toiled in vain. Then he goes further. He moves from language of running and toiling of exertion to language of sacrifice. Look with me in verse 17. But even if I am currently being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am rejoicing, and I share my joy with you all, so you too rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. He says, but even if I am being poured out, even if I am actively being poured out, and the word he uses there is, is a very unique word. It's not a common word. And it's a word that was used to describe in, in Jewish life uh, the, the wine that was laid at the very end of a Thanksgiving sacrifice. So in Jewish life, you've got different kinds of sacrifices. The ones you and I are most familiar with would be the sacrifice like what Christ did on the cross, a sacrifice to atone for sin, where blood is, where blood is shed and, and blood is offered and that sacrifice is laid on in which uh, God looks upon that sacrifice and, and, and pours out his wrath on that sacrifice. We think of these sacrifices, but in, in, in Old Testament, there are many different kinds of sacrifices. And there was a kind of sacrifice that was a sacrifice of praise or thanksgiving. In light of the forgiveness of sin that comes with the shedding of blood, there were offered then sacrifices not to, not to seek forgiveness of sin, but to, to praise God for the forgiveness of sin, to give thanksgiving to God for who he is and his relationship with his people. And on these sacrifices, the last part of the sacrifice they put the meat up, they put a grain offering up, and the last part was to pour out 
a drink offering, to pour out wine, which symbolized joy, to joyfully pour out. And, and when that, that, that liquid hit the flame, it would have flamed brilliantly. And the idea was that these sacrifices of thanksgiving are a pleasing aroma to God. This is the word that Paul uses. He says, even if I am being poured out, the sacrifice of, of thanksgiving, the offering of praise, Philippians, is your sacrifice and service. It's your active engagement in ministry. And I'll remind us, church family, remember all the way back in chapter 1 of Philippians, what is in Paul in this, this deep relationship he has with the Philippian church, what's at the core of it? It's not just that the church has received Paul and responded to the gospel, but in receiving Paul and responding to the gospel, this church has gone to the next step, and they are actively living out the gospel. They are on mission with Paul. They are a gospel-driven church seeking to, to live out rightly, to proclaim correctly, to take the gospel throughout their city and beyond. They are active in ministry. They are active in the, the sacrifice and service of their faith. They undoubtedly are facing hardships in, in their city, which is so heavily pro-Roman as a Rome, Roman colony, where the worship of the emperor would have been commonplace, where their refusal to call the emperor Lord would have brought them into conflict. And upon their sacrifice, and service and ministry, Paul says, so I am being poured out. I, if, I am, if I am that last part upon the offering of your ministry to the Lord, because we are in this ministry together, church in Philippi, he says, even if I am that, I rejoice. Now, what, how is he being poured out? There's a lot of debate on this. Is he being poured out because he's about to face death? Well, what we've seen in Philippians, Paul knows that death could be a possibility of his current imprisonment, but it's not likely. He does not expect to die. In fact, in, in next week's sermon, we'll see that he expects to be released and come to them shortly. So what does he mean by being poured out? What he means is currently there he is under imprisonment, under house arrest. He's, he's been restricted. There is suffering for the sake of the gospel, and that suffering could go as far as what Paul is saying is, I am willing to be completely and totally laid out for the cause of Christ with you in ministry for the glory of God. And he says, church in Philippi, hear me. He says, I am rejoicing. The fact that God would take my life and pour it out as an offering of thanksgiving and praise to him being faithful in this ministry upon you, just as you are being faithful in ministry. He goes, I rejoice. He says, church in Philippi, he says, listen, I know you're concerned about me. We'll see next week uh, that they've sent one of their own, Epaphroditus, to come check on Paul and minister him. They're, they're clearly worried about Paul. And, and Paul says, what is my state? What is my state, church in Philippi, as I face hardship for the gospel, just as you are likely facing hardship for the gospel? He says, my state, it is not dread. It is not regret. It is not fear. He says, I am rejoicing. I am rejoicing that God would pour my life out for his glory, and I share my joy with you. I would have you sense the same joy I feel, and he takes it a step further, and he commands them, so you too rejoice. And as you rejoice and know the joy of Christ, you share your joy with me. 
Paul takes this abrupt, what starts out as a command not to grumble and complain that, that the church in Philippi might stand rightly before the Lord on that day. Paul takes an abrupt personal turn saying, I don't want to have run and labored in vain. And just as you are engaged in ministry, so if God pours me out to whatever extent, even if it demands my very life breath and martyrdom, so I rejoice. You rejoice too. Paul, it's a joy to be poured out in ministry. It's, it's an honor. And so he calls the church in Philippi to join with him in that same joy. It's an interesting little text. Our primary command is to rejoice, but, but how do we apply, church family? Where do we go? Where do we walk through this personal insight into Paul? We don't know Paul. Paul doesn't know us. He's not writing this. Oh, but church family, is there a truth to be applied? Absolutely. Absolutely, church family. You see, church family, in light of the day of Christ, in light of the end of the story we looked at a couple weeks ago, in light of the fact that Christ is returning, you and I must run in labor and ministry faithfully. And the sacrifice and service of ministry rejoicing as God chooses to pour us out as an offering of praise unto himself. And that sounds really fancy. Here's what we mean, church family. It means God has entrusted to you and I a ministry that in our lives he is looking for faithfulness in that ministry. And there is coming a day where he returns. There is coming a day where we will stand before him in evaluation And the hope is that we would stand before him in that evaluation as good and faithful servants. And so in light of that day coming, as we stand here in the present, understanding that ministry is hard and challenging, but we remain faithful in it, filled with joy. See, there's a background here we need to understand, church family. So if you got your Bibles, be prepared to, to move. Get your fingers dusted off. We're going to go two places real fast. Go to the left, a couple books, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We've mentioned this several times, but I want all of us to see it this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And look in verse 10. The Corinthian church is arguing based on who ministered to them. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Christ. And, and, and Paul's calling them out of this ministerial partisanship. And look what he says in verse 10. He says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he, how he, how he builds. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now look carefully. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If the man's work which he has built remains, he will receive a reward. If the man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. Here's what it's saying, church family. For you and I, if we are in Christ, there is a foundation of Jesus Christ that has been laid in our lives at, at the moment of salvation. Every one of us. 
And there are different people who, who were instrumental in sharing the gospel with us. And maybe it's parents, maybe it's a friend, a coworker, whoever it is. There are people who have shared and sowed the seed of gospel in our lives. And, and when that moment of salvation came where we responded to the conviction of the Spirit, the foundation in our lives was set, Jesus Christ. And on that foundation in our lives and in each other's lives, we build. It's a building metaphor. We build. And there's different materials we can build with. So as we conduct our life, as we live, as we follow Christ, as we walk with each other, as we minister to each other and to a lost and dying world, we build on that foundation. And what it's saying is there comes a moment for you and I in Christ. We do not have to endure the great white throne judgment because our names are written in the book of life. The judgment based on our sin, it's already happened if we're in Christ. Christ took it on the cross. But you and I will face a different kind. We, we could use the word judgment. Some would use the word judgment. Truly what it is is it's an evaluation of our life as children of God. It doesn't determine if we go to heaven or not. But in a way that Scripture leaves somewhat mysterious for us, the faithfulness of our lives in response to the grace of God is either rewarded or not. Not rewarded with heaven, not rewarded with access to Christ. That's all guaranteed in salvation. But there is some level of eternal reward that our lives will be evaluated on. And this is, this is this day, it is this idea that's in Paul's mind when he writes to the Philippians and he says, I don't want to run or labor in vain. I don't want to come to that moment where my life is evaluated as a child of God before Christ and all of a sudden discover that the energy, the effort, the time, the exertion that I spent with my life amounted to wood, hay, and straw. And when Christ's fire evaluated it, what happens to wood, hay, and straw when it, fire comes near? It burns up. But what happens when it's gold, silver, and precious jewels? It's refined, and it becomes more pure, more brilliant, more vibrant, more valuable. And by the way, I'm assuming all of us, if you got offered a bag of wood, hay, and straw, or a bag of gold, silver, and jewels, I'm pretty sure we'd all take the bag of gold, silver, and jewels. So this is the background that drives Paul, but there's another background for you and I. So understand, church family, there comes a moment for you and I when our life, if you are in this room as a believer, you and I will stand before Jesus Christ, and what we did with our lives will be evaluated in light of what God has called us to do with our lives. So turn back towards Philippians, but stop right before to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 2, verse 8. Ephesians 2, verse 8. Some have called this the Baptist salvation verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of work so that no one may boast. Here's what he's saying. Salvation is a gift of grace. There is nothing you or I do to merit it, to earn it, to achieve it. It is a gift of grace that is received in our lives through a response of repentant faith. It's not based on our works. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. No one can stand before God and say, Jesus, you're so lucky you saved me. That's what he means. No man may boast. But look at this. Because understand, we're real good. We are real good in Baptist life about proclaiming a gospel that is by grace through faith. Because all of us absolutely need to be saved from our sins. 
The problem is, oftentimes, we stop short right there. Look at what verse 10 says. For we, those of us who have been saved, are God's workmanship. That word is artistic masterpiece is really what it means. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You see, church family, you and I have not just been saved from hell. We've not just been forgiven from our sins so we can now lead a life in this world but with the confidence of knowing I've got my get-out-of-hell-free card to where my life I lead in this world is essentially the same and after the same aims and the same purposes and the same goals it would be if Christ wasn't in my life. It says, no, it says that we are in Christ. We, have, we are God's artistic masterpiece. We don't just have talents from how he fearfully and wonderfully made us as humans. We've now been remade. We are new creations in Christ, and we not only have those, but we have spiritual giftings given by the Holy Spirit. And God has laid out in front of us a path of good works that he has called us a, a, to walk in with our lives. And what is in that path? We'll turn one page over, at least in my Bible, one page. Maybe not your Bible. I can't speak for your Bible. Look at chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 11, talking about if that was talking about each one of us as an individual, look what it says about us as a church. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, the work of ministry, to the building up of the body of Christ. Okay, so let me say what this means. Inside of the church, God has called out some people and given them as gifts. The apostles, referring back to the, to the apostles who, who, who authored the New Testament, he's given prophets. Not so much prophets, those who speak the future, but those who understand how to clearly discern the word of the Lord and apply it to present context. He's given evangelists. That would be the idea of someone who is vocationally living in church planning and training church planners. We would call that a, uh, an overseas international church planner or a North American internet, uh, church planner. And he's given pastor teachers. There's two terms governed by one article in the Greek, which means it's referring to the same role. He's given pastor teachers. Here in our church family, that would be me. That would be the Daniels. That would be Matt. That would be Mike for a few more weeks. But did you catch what it said? He gives those pastor teachers not to do all the ministry, but to equip every saint to do the work of ministry. Amen. See, church family, sometimes it's, it's true. I believe firmly that there is a unique calling of God where God calls out some men, specifies some among his flock to be pastor shepherds. There is, in that sense, a call to ministry. But understand, sometimes that, that lingo has maybe created this idea that the ministry is to be done by the ministers. Just like the engineering is to be done by the engineers, the accounting by the accountants, the ministry should be done by the ministers. We trust the ministry to those professional people we hire. That is a very American business idea. That is not what Scripture says. Amen. Scripture, in fact, says this, church family. Scripture says you are a minister. 
Scripture says you are a saint, and as a saint, you are a minister of the gospel. You have ministry that you are called to do. Our role in the church as pastors is to care for you. It is to to shepherd your soul according to Hebrews. It is according to Ephesians to equip you so you can step out into your context, your life, the life God has called you to, your family, your work, your place of living, whatever things create that life, that circle around you so that you can step into that circle and do ministry. And what is that ministry? It's the exact same thing we see in the book of Philippians, that ministry of making disciples, of building up the body. Building up the body means making disciples, proclaiming the gospel, helping people come to faith in Christ. When they come to faith in Christ, it is helping them grow deeper and deeper and deeper in that relationship until we are all completely and totally mature together in unity. We are all called to ministry. There's a ministry to our spouses, husbands, to love your wives as Christ loves the church, and in that love, to so love your wife in a way that she can say before Jesus, Jesus, I have a deeper love for you because of the impact of the love of my husband. That's the real test of spiritual leadership, gentlemen. There's a ministry to our spouses. There's a ministry to our children. We're called to make disciples of our children, to disciple our children, to know Jesus truly, to love Jesus completely, and to follow him faithfully all of their lives. Not to make them really good faithful Aggies or Longhorns or tennis players or baseball players or band players or whatever else so often can distract. We have a ministry to our friends to care for one another, to bear one another's burdens. We have a ministry to the lost. Church family, understand, you and I are not here to create a country club. We're not here to create a a really sound place of refuge away from the world. We are here together to worship Jesus, and Jesus sends us out to those who do not know Christ in our sphere to both live out and proclaim the gospel. There is a ministry to the lost that you and I have been charged to. This is a ministry. Work is a ministry. We don't have time to unpack that today, but guess what? Work was present before sin. Work is a gift of God. God also news for you. If you really want to do a deep dive into what happens when Jesus comes back, we don't spend all eternity playing harps on clouds. That's what happens in Looney Tune heaven. But praise God, we don't go to Looney Tune heaven, we go to real heaven and the new heaven and the new earth. And it says very clearly that you and I will have jobs and roles and work, not work because we must labor and toil in the way that it's broken now, but work because work was on God's heart from before sin even occurred. You see, our work, our vocation is ministry. And part of the reason, and if you came on Wednesday, we're in such a terrible place with biblical worldview is because a long time ago, we as believers forgot that our vocations are ministries to show and proclaim and demonstrate the glory of God through them. We have a ministry within the body, church family. Listen, it mattered to Paul. It matters to Paul. It says that the the weight of the church weighed on him. It mattered to Paul how the churches were doing. Paul is hundreds of miles away from the church in Philippi. There are no phones. There are no email. There are no fax machines. There are no pagers. There's no social media. I don't care what other communication device I can think of in the moment. There's none of it. 
There's not even normal paper and pen. And it is weighing on him to know how the church in Philippi is doing, to care for them, to see them following faithfully Christ. And they are doing overall well, but there's some small little murmurings of discontent, and it matters to Paul. And so, church family, we ought to matter to each other. Our spiritual health ought to matter to each other. Our presence ought to matter to each other. We ought to matter to each other because God has called us to ministry, and part of that ministry is a ministry to take care of and build and spur one another on. See, all of these are aspects of ministry that God has called you and I to. We were not saved to sit around and eat Twinkies. We were saved and left here on earth so we could live out a life of faithfulness to Christ and fulfill the ministry that he has saved you and I specifically for. Which means this, church family, we've got to run and labor in ministry so that we would stand proud on the day of Christ. All of us as individuals, us as a church family, our aim, there is a ministry God has entrusted us with, that is to make disciples. Our ministry is not to make disciples of ourselves. God's not looking for a lot of many Wes Wilkinsons. Praise the Lord, he made one of me, and that's enough. But God is looking to take a Wes Wilkinson and use a Wes Wilkinson humbly submitted to him and by his grace to make disciples of Jesus Christ. We don't make disciples of ourselves. We seek to make disciples of Christ, who know Christ, who love Christ, who follow Christ. It means that we don't minister for our will in the name of Jesus in other people's lives. We minister for God's will. It means my opinion of what you should do with your rest of the life is absolutely pointless, but God's opinion matters. And I better, as I minister to you, make sure I am prayerfully pointing you and encouraging to God's will for your life and not just what I think you'd be really good at in Jesus' name. Not only this... But if we're really going to be faithful in ministry, I'll give you another practical reality. It means that we better be careful as we minister to one another that we don't try to pray hardship out of another's life when that hardship is directly being used by God to grow them more mature. Doesn't mean we can't grieve with those who grieve. Doesn't mean when that hardship, when, when that moment comes, when that pressure there is at work and our, our, our friend is telling us that and we're listening to it, it doesn't mean that we are not sympathetic to it, but it also means that we make sure as we do ministry, it is not about our view, our perception of what is going on. It is about God's will in that person's life. You see, church family, we have ministry. We must run and labor in ministry so that we would stand proud on the day of Christ. There is a moment coming where Christ will evaluate our lives. And will we see, when our lives are placed on that altar, will we see a really nice gingerbread house of, of, of popsicle sticks? which will burn in an instant? Or will we see a labor of gold, silver, and precious jewels? But we don't, just, we don't just run and labor in ministry so that we may stand proud on the day of Christ. We run and labor in ministry so that others would stand proud on the day of Christ. This goes back to we, we, we run and labor in ministry so that others would stand faithful and as Christ has called them to be. God's will in their life, not ours. So church family, here's the question. 
Are we running and laboring faithfully in the sacrifice and service of ministry? Now, I'm, I'm not going to give, I honestly haven't been here long enough to, to be able to state this here, but let me just, I'll look out. I remember the moment it hit me as a youth pastor years ago when I, I had 150 students and I see the, the hardships and the reality in their lives and I see what it takes to disciple someone. It takes a lot of time, energy, effort. And I looked out and I remember when the day came and I realized there's about two of us who are really fighting to make disciples of these students. I need more help. I can't disciple 150 teenagers. And so I remember beginning to look at how do we begin to change how we're doing ministry so that we can get more people in. And I remember going to every single Sunday school class, able-bodied. And I went in and I had it all worked. I gave a five-minute little presentation of here's what we're doing in the ministry. Here's why we're doing it. Here's what we need. Here's what I'm looking for. I made it realistic so that working adults with families could actually come in and do it. And I said, here's my email. Here's my number. Here's where I'm going to stand when you're out of your Sunday school class today. Come talk to me if God touches your heart. One year I got one person. The other year I got none. I think of opportunities at A&M where there are 6,000 students from other nations. And in the top 10, I want to say uh, five of the top six are nations you and I could not enter into and share the gospel publicly. We were blessed, and, and things were, as towards the end of my time, God was using various lay people to open doors amongst those groups. I remember one of them sharing with me how they would go and share in other small groups in the church. Here's what we do. We've got all these students. We've got 50, 60 students coming to our house, and they desperately want to connect with any American, and they are open to connecting with a, with a Christian. Would you just be willing to come and keep up with one of them? And no one volunteered. How many times have the preschool said, oh my goodness, we can't take any more students. We can't take any more children inside of our ministry. We've already stretched to the max. And the appeal goes out to the deacon body. And the deacons show up and say, no, I won't serve in the preschool ministry. By the way, I didn't make that one up. That's a real example from another church I served at. See, church family, how are we doing running and laboring in ministry? Where are we at? Are we being found faithful? Are we running and laboring? Or have we taken an attitude of passivity and too busy? Listen to how one, how, how one writer phrased it. That which characterized the Philippians should, could well characterize us. There are burdens to be borne and shared, but no one cares. Saints of God to be taught, but no one cares. Young people and children to be trained in grow groups, vacation Bible school, student ministry, other things, but no one cares. Why are we too busy? Are we too preoccupied with our own busyness? No one cares. And they ask the question, will we know the joy of sacrifice or the curse of indifference? Now, church family, what I'm not saying today as a result of applying this passage is, is that You've got to be engaged in everything you could ever do ministerially. God didn't call you to do all the ministry. He called you to do the ministry he called you to do. 
And for some of you, it may mean that God brings you into a season, a season where the ministry God has entrusted you with is a ministry that's very behind the scenes. I remember when my, when my mother stepped out of leading a, a, a large, at the time, the largest in the city ministry, ministering to single moms, because God really laid it on her heart that the point of life where my sister was at, my, my sister and my sister's uh, challenges she faced, that my sister needed undivided attention. And that my, my mom's called to disciple her. Now this, this was, this was going to demand so much she couldn't do this over here. Listen, there's some of you in this room that are in places like that. I am in no means trying to guilt anyone into doing everything. What I am asking is this church family, that all of us ask the Lord to show us what is the ministry he's entrusted to us and called us as individuals to do and to no longer use being too busy and tired and scared and to whatever fill in the blank not to do it. And see, sometimes we don't do it because the reality is this, church family, ministry is hard work. It's hard work. It's easy to quit before we're finished. Do you see the, the, the language Paul uses in the text? Running, toiling, being poured out, sacrifice, service, ministry is hard work. It's hard work because it's sacrificial. If you're going to serve with the little babies and be the first touch of Jesus through the life of the church in their lives, you're going to have to give up corporate worship. It's a sacrifice. If you're going to serve with students, with teenagers, you're going to give up some calm nights. If you're going to serve and minister faithfully and generously financially, when inflation is high and real and the cost of living is up, it's going to be sacrificial. If you're, going to be in, if you're going to minister, you're going to lose sleep because you're staying up to walk a person through trial. You're going to have to give up emotional capacity to hurt and grieve with others. It might be a lonely road because, unfortunately, most don't take up the call to do ministry. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a lonely road. In fact, what we'd find is those church family you serve with will be the greatest community you'll ever know. Ministry is hard because it demands sacrifice. Ministry is hard because the people we minister to are broken. Many of the people you share the gospel with will not respond when you share them the gospel. Many of the people you minister to, as especially true if you work with young people today, may, may take a different approach and say they're deconstructing their faith and look like they're walking away. Some of the people God calls you to minister to, to and disciple are people that have deep-seated real issues and you must walk at a snail's pace with them. Ministry is hard because you're going to speak the truth in love and you're still going to offend people who will come after you. Ministry's hard because the world is bent and people are broken. Ministry is also hard, church family, because we have a real enemy who opposes every last drop of the ministry God has called you and I to do. Amen. And he is no respecter of persons. He will come after you. He will come after your family. He will come after you through loved ones. He will come after you through the world. He will come after you in any way he can to discourage, to busy, to create an indifference, to scare, to keep you and I from faithfully fulfilling the ministry God has called you to. See, church family, ministry is hard, but we must not quit before we've finished. Amen. But here's the real point of this whole text. What's the command? What does Paul tell them? Rejoice. 
See, church family, you and I will be evaluated. You and I are called to do ministry. We're called in that ministry to, 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 to minister faithfully that we might be proud before the Lord so that others might stand before the Lord proud because we've ministered for God's glory and will in their life. That ministry, if we really take up that burden of ministry, it is hard, it is labor, it is running, it is challenging. But if we take it up, we're not to do it with a drudgery, a dread, a complaint, but even when it's hard and challenging, we are to rejoice. Rejoice. We are to do it with joy. Out of the example of Christ, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Think about what Paul is facing as he says he is rejoicing, whereas he could be free living, he could be back in, 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 in uh, Jerusalem having never left the Jewish faith, and he could be, be up at the top, the chief priest, and there he is, holed away in a small little apartment, chained to a Roman guard, unable to leave, waiting in a pill before Caesar, or the Philippians, who as they seek to follow Christ faithfully, as they refuse to go in and offer that incense to the emperor, all of a sudden, they lose customers at their business. Their income goes down. All of a sudden, they're getting snide remarks by passers-by. All of a sudden, they are now targeted by their government and facing mandates that would cause them to violate their faith. And yet Paul says, rejoice. Rejoice. Go about that ministry in joy. Church family, practically that means when you are holding that door open as a greeter, you hold that door open with the joy of Christ exploding out of your heart. Because who knows who you look in the eyes that day and smile to that desperately needed to see someone care for them. By the way, most people choose to come back or not come back to a church, not after the songs, not after the preaching, but within the first 30 seconds they get out their car door because of how they're greeted. If you ever greet and hold one of these doors open, don't ever think that ministry is invaluable. It means that when you're the deacon of the day and you're not in worship this time, you're back in a room praying for God to move the whole time before you come in and pray for our offering, you spend that time in prayer with joy. It means when your slot in the 24-7 prayer wall is at 3 in the morning, you don't wake up at 3 in the morning Frustrated that you signed up for that spot, but you wake up with joy praying, God, what would you do? Who would you lay on my heart? And by the way, praying at three in the morning with joy doesn't mean you can't struggle with being half awake a little bit. Joy and sleep aren't mutually exclusive. How do we rejoice, church family? We take joy in the fact that our lives are being used by God to bring an offering of thanksgiving and praise. We take joy that our lives are being used by God in spite of ourselves because God doesn't work because of us. He works in spite of us. That's why he works in his grace. And if we'll submit to that, he'll do more than we ever could through us. We find joy in living a life that is pleasing to the heart of our Father, to be able to stand before Jesus one day and hear, well done good and faithful servant. But ultimately, what does it mean to rejoice? We can take joy in all of those things, but ultimately what it means to rejoice in how we take joy is we intentionally stop and we meditate in, the, in our mind and our heart upon who Jesus is upon what Jesus has done on your behalf and mine. And as we take time to pause, to think, to meditate there, that's what rejoicing is, and that act produces joy. It produces joy 
so that when it gets hard, we don't quit because our eyes are locked on him. It produces joy because our focus is on the king and not on the results of the ministry we lead. It means we seek to be faithful and we let the Lord bring the results. It means we allow our gaze to be driven by the fact that he is returning. Think about this. Jeremiah faithfully fulfilled the ministry God called him to, and he had zero converts. Because the reality with ministry, church family, is not you and I controlling the outcome. It's about being faithful to Christ. And that joy can come there when our hearts and minds are locked on who he is and what he's done. And as that joy springs up, we share it with each other. We spur one another on. We encourage one another. We share stories with one another. As we hear how God's moving through someone else's life, we take joy hearing and seeing that our God is good, that our God is great, and he is on the move through his people. question for you and I as his people. Will we be on the move with the ministry he's called each one of us to? Sometimes we've got to get a few moments of quiet, and, and for that means with Jessie, who if you've seen Jessie, she's crazy active. She loves life. So we'll put on sometimes uh, Finding Nemo because she likes the fishes. And it caught me the other day if you don't know the story, Nemo is taken away from his dad. The whole story is about the dad finding Nemo, going through all these links to rescue his son, to get his son out of the captivity of the fish tank of the Disney, of the dentist's office. And the fish in that fish tank have a plan to escape, and their plan goes awry, and, and they're stuck, and they're gloomy, and, and, and the moment's coming where the dentist's niece is going to take Nemo, and, and every fish the dentist's niece takes, Darla, they all die. There's a death sentence hanging over his head. And it struck me, there's a scene, the father is almost to Nemo, and this pelican comes swimming in the window, and he says, Nemo, where's Nemo, where's Nemo? And Nemo swims out depressed, sad, the labor's been hard, it seems like a failure. And the pelican says, Nemo, your dad's on his way. And he begins to recount all the things the, the dad has gone through to come and to rescue his son. And he's just this line where he just looks at him and says, Nemo, your dad's in the current right now and he is on his way to get you. And all the fish get real excited and they look for Nemo. Nemo's gone. Where's Nemo? The task that he had felled out prior that almost cost him his life, there is an enthusiasm and intentionality, a joy behind it. He goes, he grabs a rock, he swims up the pipe, he puts it in there. Now the, the fish tank can go in. He, he all of a sudden... Upon the news of his father's coming, who his dad is, what his dad has done to come after him, and the fact that his dad is on the way, all of a sudden, the discouragement gone, the fear gone, what happens? The task that he was appointed to, church family. We know who Jesus is. We know what he's done on our behalf. And we know he's coming back. There is ministry before each one of us to go do that only God through us can do. Will we know the joy of sacrifice or will we know the curse of indifference? Let's pray. Father, you have laid in front of us all of us and all of our lives. There's a ministry for us as a church collectively. There's ministry for each and every one of us individually. 
And God, my prayer is very simple, that we would be a church family that doesn't come and show up to church to consume, but we would be a church family who comes together to worship you, to glorify you, who comes together to bear one another's burdens, to encourage one another and spur each one another on, who comes together to disciple one another, and who goes out with eyes and attitudes to, to, to uh, through their work, praise you, through their work to minister, whatever that work may be, anything from staying at home to whatever their vocation is, with eyes open and hearts sensitive. to see those who are lost in front of them and to not know the right answer but to do the right thing and knowing them and showing them the gospel and telling them the gospel, that we would be that kind of church, Lord. So Holy Spirit, as you know where our hearts are, may we respond to you. It's in your name I pray, Jesus.